Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Show, the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions. And now, the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio. Here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Patricia Raskin Show. We're in our 23rd year here on Voice America and very proud of it. And this is the program that shows you how to turn your obstacles into opportunities and your problems into solutions and how to make your dreams come true. Today, we're talking about a very interesting topic that I think is an elephant in the room for many of us, but we don't talk about it. And that is blame, how blame is affecting all of us and certainly our political attitudes, but also our culture, our relationships with family and work. My guest is Gail Sahar. And she is the author of the new book, Blame and Political Attitudes, The Psychology of America's Culture War. This is her latest release about the blame-placing tendencies of American politics and how to change perspectives. Gail earned her undergraduate degree from USC and her PhD in psychology from UCLA. She now teaches at Wheaton College in Massachusetts and is the Jane Oxford Cater Professor of Psychology and has researched the effects of causal perceptions on political attitudes for over 30 years. Her work offers hope to those working for political change, as well as ways to suggest to influence attitudes of others by focusing less on political ideology and more on perceptions of the causes of our social problems. So, welcome, Gail. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah, really great. I mean, this is a big topic. I guess my question is, since you've done research, I know you start in the political area. I kind of want to spread this out to everywhere. But why do you think that blame is so pervasive in our culture? Has it always been that way? Is it more than it was before? Has it always been that way in politics? What do you think? Um, I think Americans have a kind of predisposition to blame. <laughs> and I think part of it is that we have this kind of um, ideology and that it, it's certainly in politics, but I think even in our personal lives and our family lives, that is, we sort of see the world through an individualistic lens, meaning mm. everybody's responsible for their own self, right, for pulling themselves by their own bootstraps, et cetera. Mm. Um, so I feel like we have a higher tendency than many cultures to hold people responsible for any error that they make. So it's not, oh, well, it was the circumstance, right, that caused you to do that. We tend to really jump very quickly to the idea that if somebody did something wrong, it's something about their character, right, that it reflects yeah. there maybe they're a bad person, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, yeah. I think we've always been blamers, but I do sense, at least in the political realm, but I think even outside of it, I think it's gotten worse. I think the conversations are more vitriolic. There's more mm. and not mm. just you screwed up, but like, you know, you're a bad person. And yeah. Do, do you think and without being political here, mm -hmm. do you think in the last, let's say, seven or eight or 10 years, because of the leadership uh, in our country and seeing more blame? And bullying in that arena, do you think that's affected it and made it worse and trickled down to the, you know, to our citizens? I do think, I do think so. Yeah. I mean, I think that they've kind of taken the gloves off. And so there's no politeness, right? There's no kind of mutual respect. 
you see it among politicians, I think really on both sides of the divide, you can see people who who really respond with great anger and attacks on people's character, et cetera. So I think it kind of legitimized it. And I think it increased the tendency for people to do that. I mean, think of things like the cancel culture stuff, just to go, it's a little bit political, but this idea that, that um, if someone does something we don't like, right, we, we have now these electronic means of expressing our anger and frustration. And I think when people are expressing themselves not face-to-face, they'll say things they would never say in person. Mm-hmm. So I think that also kind of fans the flames, this mm-hmm. idea that there are anonymous, almost anonymous ways of, of attacking people. One of the problems with with becoming aggressive like that is is it sort of disinhibits you. So once you do it once... Right. It's, you know, it's not much more to do it again, and it just keeps escalating. And what has been the effect on us? What are you seeing as the effect on the recipients of that blame and shame? Well, I think there's a sort of feeling almost of helplessness that it's it's really difficult to recover from attack on your character. I can recover mm-hmm. if someone says, that was really thoughtless of you to do that. You know, I can recover from that. I can look at myself and say, oh, gosh, I'm sorry, I'm you know, it wasn't intentional or something. But when it's an attack on someone's character, right away, it's like you are a bad or evil person, even. Mm. It's very difficult. to If you start to try to talk yourself out of it, you just sound like you're being defensive, right? So mm. it's, it's yeah. a really difficult thing to kind of tamp down the emotion at that point and to, and to recover from something like that. What sparked your interest in really looking at this whole concept of blame with politics and political attitudes? How did you come up? How did you come to do this? How did this happen? Yeah, um, it's kind of a combination of factors. I grew up in a in a very small town, and um, I just remember um, talking to other kids in school, and often I had a different view of certain political issues than they did. And um, I think I saw the world slightly differently because I had a father who was an immigrant, and it was just a very different kind of experience from most of my classmates. So we often disagreed. But I never felt like, oh, these people are idiots or they're terrible or whatever. It seemed like it was sort of a learning experience. So I think part of the reason I went into wanting to understand political psychology is I was sort of fascinated by the fact that, you know, sensible people can grow up with different viewpoints. And Mm -hmm. how does that happen, et cetera? So I've, I've always been interested in the psychology of politics, I guess you could say. Do you think the fact that you came from an immigrant family, in other words, your parents were born in another country? My father. Was born in? Palestine. Right. So, and of course, there's such divide there. We know that. Yes. But do you think that because it was another country that, and you were the child of, you know, your kind of first generation, do you think that that helped you um, be uh, blameless? Do you think it helped to give you a more global, if you will, perspective? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I do think it 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 put me onto something that not all my friends had, which was the awareness that there are different ways of looking at things. Right. Like people in other right. parts of the world see it differently. Mm. So I think that was a kind of an advantage in a way that, and in a way you feel a little like an underdog because, you know, you're parent has, I know this sounds maybe silly in a city and in contemporary America, but at the time, like nobody had an accent in my town, right? So I think that, you know, you feel a little bit like, oh, okay, I'm a little bit of an outsider. And I think that does allow you in a way to to have a more nuanced view and 
just to be aware there are different ways of looking at the same issue. Um, and you're certainly right, coming from the Middle East, where there's so much conflict. I think I was always really aware of and, and wanted to understand exactly what was going on. Um, mm -hmm. And then, um, then when I was in graduate school, I got very interested in just the idea of how people think about causality and how we mm -hmm. attribute causes for events. And that sort of led me to the political realm eventually. So what was kind of the first aha as you were doing research that you found in this whole realm of blame and political attitudes? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think probably my doctoral dissertation, which was a very controversial topic. I did a study of people's attitudes toward abortion. Um, and I, and I, as I started to sort of read about it, and I was just following things on the news, I watched a program on, I think it was 60 Minutes. We're talking now more than 30 years ago when I was a grad student. And on this program, they had a pro-choice and a pro-life activist. And the, the moderator was trying to understand the way, the, what their worldviews were, why they had these different opinions. And right away, as I was watching, I noticed that the, um, the person who was pro-life used the example of women using abortion for birth control. So that's what she saw as the cause of unwanted pregnancy. And the woman who was pro-choice used the example of rape basically. Mm -hmm. And so as I was watching this, I had this kind of epiphany that maybe it isn't only ideology, maybe part of it is the way we see what causes mm -hmm. unwanted pregnancy. And, mm -hmm. and is, does it have something to do with blaming people who others see as irresponsible for being in that situation, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So that really kind of was a, a sudden revelation. And then I started working on that study. Um, yeah. And it's still happening even more so than it was then. Absolutely. They're still fighting the same battle after all this time, right? With Roe just being overturned, et cetera. Yeah. And I do and still think blame is an aspect of it. It's not all of the picture, but it's part of it, I think. Yeah. And attacking people's character, yes, right? right? You know, you were irresponsible. You weren't, I mean, and in many cases, as we know, um, that's not true in, in, in most cases, maybe not all. But so... In doing this work, and let's just use the abortion as an example because it's a it's it's a very current topic. How do you see, Gail, your work making a difference when this is a big issue and people are really on both sides and they're not they're not compromising? Maybe yeah. a little, but not a lot. Yeah, I mean, what, what gives me a hope a little bit is that even though we talk about ourselves being very divided on the issue of abortion, we're not really that divided. Most Americans believe in abortion in certain situations. So, for example, sexual assault or incest, um, yes. threat to the life of the mother. So it's something like 80% of people, Republican and Democrat alike, mm. actually are okay with that. Where, where it really gets down to the difficulties, I think, are the, the most extreme 10% on either end. Um, so it's, I think it's another one of those situations where we imagine it to be a bigger culture war than it is. Um, Interesting. um, but, but as far as what my work can do, I, my hope is that by thinking about causes and talking about those kind of rational aspects, well, what makes you, what causes unwanted pregnancy? Why do you think it has to do with being reckless? Or why do you think it has, it's not the woman's fault, et cetera. Those are things, those are conversations that can be had. It's really hard. You're not going to talk someone out of their religious beliefs or their other kinds of political ideology. But I think mm -hmm. talking about those facts to me is the most promising way of 
finding any common ground. Because mm. I think there are plenty of pro-life people who would say, oh, gosh, a threat to the life of the mother is different for me, right? So mm -hmm. it's trying to find those little areas of common ground that I'm yes. hoping for. Yeah, wonderful. I mean, very interesting. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about how to focus on perceived causes of social problems, which is something you just talked about, Gail, and how to re reconcile those fundamental beliefs. And we'll continue that conversation with Gail Sahar. And Gail is the author of the new book, Blame and Political Attitudes, The Psychology of America's Culture War. And Gail is a Jane Oxford Kiter Professor of Psychology at Wheaton College in Mass. And she's been researching the effects of casual or causal. She, she's been researching the effects of causal perceptions and political attitudes for over 30 years. Right. Stay tuned, folks. You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on Voice America. America's Voice. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's time to unlock some of the best-kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host, keynote speaker, and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now, she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for The Forbes Factor. We guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. Get Unchained. Tune in every Wednesday for Unchained TV on the Voice America Variety Channel. Featuring nationally recognized, best-selling author, TV journalist, and the founder of the Unchained TV free streaming network, Jane Velez Mitchell. This program takes you inside a trending lifestyle that's the next wave of human evolution. It all starts on your plate. If you want to revolutionize your life, get happier, more energized, then discover the secret. Tune in to Unchained TV, Wednesdays at 12 p.m. Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. are listening to the patricia raskin show if you wish to call into our program today please call 1-866-472-5788 that number again is 1-866-472-5788 you may also send an email to patricia at patriciaraskin.com now back to the patricia raskin show hi everyone and we are back we have 
very interesting guest, Gail Sahar. She's talking about her new book, Blame and Political Attitudes, The Psychology of America's Culture War. You know, the current emphasis on value differences, conservative versus liberal, religious versus secular, actually ignores the commonalities and the way that people really think about issues, whether it's poverty, abortion, racial inequality, sexual assaults, um, and many more, and, and certain political figures, and many more. And so we're talking to Gail Sahar, who is a Jane Oxford Kiter Professor of Psychology at Wheaton College, Mass., and she's been researching the effects of causal perceptions on political attitudes for over 30 years. Her research focuses on the links between political ideology, perceptions of the causes of social problems, blame, emotions, and attitudes towards controversial social issues. So welcome back, Gail. Thank you. Yeah. So let's go back to the whole idea of blame. How blame perceptions, think about people who are blaming all the time. How does it eventually influence the way we think? Um, and do you mean about politics or just sort of in general more? Um, it could be politics. It could be in any area. Yeah. Well, the the stuff about politics, and I could, I'm happy to talk about the more general personal experience part of it too. But in terms of politics, um, I think that Right now, there's a lot of animosity between people of different ideologies, for example. So I think people are even more quick than usual mm -hmm. to blame. Um, and what happens with blame is um, what what these studies show is that when you when you see some something bad happened, you see someone else is responsible for it. Um, you blame them, and what comes next generally is anger. Um, so it's it's sort of a you know responsibility, then blame, then anger, kind of escalating. And then the end product is either aggression or at the very least not wanting to, to sort of help that person, right? Mm -hmm. So it has has big effects. Um, when we we were talking a few minutes ago about abortion, and and I think I didn't quite complete the the circle there, but the the idea is if you if you see unwanted pregnancy as caused by a, say a woman who's reckless and irresponsible you're not going to, you're going to blame her, right? You're not going to um, feel as much sympathy. You might even be a little annoyed or angry. And you're going to say, no, why should we help you, right? Where abortion would be helping you, you should be held responsible instead, et cetera. So it has big effects on our, on our attitudes. Um, mm. But it also, I think, has effects just on how we view people. So if we're, if we're in that mode of all the time, looking for what the other person did wrong and you see it in politics but it's not unique to politics right their blame mm -hmm. is going on all the time mm -hmm. it begins to undermine your respect for people right and to, mm -hmm. to and know. to divide them right so yes. right so now you don't want to talk to them now you right. don't want to be anywhere near them right. right but you know i was saying this to you during break and it's interesting recently and i know this show is evergreen so people might listen two or three years later but this is not the first time this has happened where there's been an issue about balancing our budget and people have waited and waited and waited and just kept waiting. You know, they just kept waiting um, until the very, very last minute. Now, my point is the reason that something got together and the people voted and they agreed is because they both knew that they had to have a balanced budget. Both sides, even though they really disagreed on major issues, really wanted that basic, it was that kind of that core value of we can't get up and move on if we don't have a balanced budget. 
And that forced them to compromise. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And it's unfortunate that that's what it takes. But yes, <laughs> yes, we would love it, wouldn't you? If we could, if our, our elected representatives would go in and, and start with a frame of mind of working together. But unfortunately, at least at the present time, those days seem to be gone. Um, um, it seemed to sort of require that pressure. And it isn't unique to politics. I'm thinking of so many other things. If you think about, I don't know, people going through a divorce, for example, right? It's like, both of them feel like they're getting a bad deal typically in my experience. And so there is just this sort of feeling about, all right, the only way this is going to get done is if we make these compromises. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Interesting. The other thing too, I want to talk to you about, because I do a lot of webinars in the whole area of conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we talk about is the difference between you using a you message and an I message. So if I said, well, Gail, I mean, you, you just didn't do it right. Mm-hmm. Instead of, you know, I'm, I feel frustrated and disappointment because this is, this is coming in differently than it usually does. Mm-hmm. And, and so I want to do, and it's holding up our progress and I care about you and want to see what might be happening with you because this is unusual. So what I've done there is two things. One, I state the problem and what, and what's bothering me. But I also show respect for you. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I think that's a really excellent strategy um, because I think that it's it's very easy to attack someone's character, right? But as you're saying, that is not a way to resolve a conflict because the person gets defensive, then they get angry, they can no longer even, you know, have a reasonable discussion. Um, so I, I think that that there's a lot of literature showing that conflict resolution is much much better in the way that you've stated, where you're talking about how it's affecting you and giving the person a, a way out that is still saving face. Yeah. For them. Yeah. 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 The other thing I have found is when those two parties stop talking long enough and the more the time goes on, like six months and a year and two years, it, it's like they get stuck in time and yeah. it's harder for them to resolve it. Yes. Because it's they're back in that time of, well, you know what you said three years ago? Yeah. And it's like, you know, you want to say to them, that was three to five or 10 or 20 years ago. No. But they don't see that. No. They're still in that in back in that time. Yeah. So it seems like the more the, the sooner they can resolve it or at least come to some kind of compromise or understanding, the better. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think there's also a, I think it sometimes can happen too soon. I don't know if you've ever been in a heated argument where you you kind of can't almost bring it down in the moment and you each go your separate ways for a day and then you talk. I think that's a strategy a lot of people use. Um, And and I I have used that. I have used that actually recently. I use that. (laughs) Yes. Unfortunately, we have have lots of Yes. Yep. And and, And I think because of the work that I do in understanding this, I was able to do that uh-huh. without blaming, just saying, you know, you know, that hurt my feelings right. or I felt diminished right. and then walk away and didn't talk about it. You're right for about a day. Mm-hmm. And then I got an apology, but yeah. I didn't go back and say, well, you know, you know what you said yesterday. And, you know, and even when I got the apology, I didn't say, well, I'm glad because that really hurt me. I said, thank you. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And and good for you, because we can't always, sometimes we can't follow our own advice, right? We know these things. Well, I think you have to learn that skill. I mean, I think yeah. I was good at it because I teach it. Right, but right. I, I think I'm not sure that I would have done that before. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're right. I think it's something, these are learned skills that are really, really important. Yeah, I agree with you. Okay. Um, any examples you have from teaching this to your students at Wheaton? Anything they have to say, anything they bring up? You know, it's really interesting. When I, when I teach it in social psychology, I'm not really teaching it about politics. I, instead, I talk about, about the effects of perceiving someone as responsible for something. Yeah how that affects our emotional reactions. And our causal perceptions also influence our own feelings, right? So I talked to them about the fact that you can't feel pride unless you take internal responsibility for having done a good thing, right? Right. Or you can't feel shame unless you take, you feel that you were to blame for something negative. Exactly. Right. So, and then we move it into talking about our relationships with other people. And what what's interesting is they, they have one of two reactions. Some students will just say, well, of course, this is common sense because it is common sense, right? We right. All, it's not a big surprise to you that if I think someone's responsible, I'm going to get angry, et cetera. Um, but they never sat down and thought about how it works. So other students will say, wow, I wish I had known this because, you know, I can see I can see what you're saying and, I, and it's knowledge that might have me behaving differently in the future. So a lot of students really find it very useful. And I'll ask them questions like, I'll say, you know, if you wanted me to give you an extension on a paper, what would you give me for a reason? What's the cause? They always say things like, oh, I, I had 10 assignments due the same day, or my grandmother died, or something kind of uncontrollable by them. They never say, oh, I would say it's because I went to a party the night before the paper was due, right? So intuitively, we know how these things work. Right. That mm-hmm. if I'm responsible, other people are going to be angry and not help me. But I don't think we ever really think through the logic of it and, and kind of get aware of what's happening, maybe unconsciously in our own minds. So you think it, it has helped the students in terms of thinking about blame and taking I, responsibility? I do think that. Yeah. I've even had students tell me that they'll when they learn about the American kind of tendency more than some some Eastern cultures don't are not nearly as blaming. They kind of see everything as a community. So they're kind yes. of together, et cetera. Yes. And I think that awareness um, is sometimes helpful because students realize there are other ways of, of dealing with these things. Maybe I don't have to jump to the conclusion that the other person is a jerk, right? Maybe maybe some situational effect. Maybe they were mean because they just lost a member of their family or they are going through some difficult time rather than they're a bad person. So it, it really has had a, an effect on, on your students in terms yeah, of really say, helping them. I would say, yeah. And in, in political psych, I teach about it, too, and they really find it. It's, it is really intuitive and easy to understand. And I think it just makes a lot of sense to people. So, yeah, they, they generally gravitate pretty strongly. Do you think that in the political psych, do you think it helps them to at least understand the other parties or person's point of view rather than, gee, that that politician is horrible or that politician is the best. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. I mean, I I saw it the last semester I taught it and I'll be teaching it again in fall. But the last time I taught it, I had a group of students with pretty diverse political views. I had 
of a very at least one very couple of very conservative students, a number of more liberal students, as is common on college campuses. And there were certain issues where they were so they would get so upset, and then they would listen to the rationale of the other person. Yeah. And it did change things. I remember in the last class, somebody talked about it and said it had such impact. And it, this particular thing was about um, the displaying of the American flag and what it mm -hmm. meant. One student mm -hmm. said, I find it threatening. It looks like nationalism. It's, I worry that the person is you know, racist, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And the, one of the conservative students said, to me, it just means I'm honoring um, the soldiers who have served this country. Mm. So they had completely different visions of what it meant to fly a flag. And that was really revelatory for them to be able to talk it through and say, oh, okay, this is not an act of aggression on your part, right? It's mm. because you think you're honoring someone. So yeah, I definitely have had great moments where I feel like they really come to some understanding they didn't have before. That's great. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are talking to Gail Sahar, and she's the author of the new book, Blame and Political Attitudes, The Psychology of America's Culture War. And what she does is she really looks at causes of events and why we blame and how can we change that? And, you know, how do we reconcile fundamental belief systems? And how do we focus on perceived causes of problems and take on new attitudes? So we're talking to Gail. We'll be with her right after the break. Gail, what is the website for your book? Oh, it's just uh, gailsahar.com. S-A-H-A-R. G-A-I-L-S-A-H-A-R.com. All right. You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on voiceamerica.com, America's Voice. And we'll be right back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. The boroughs are New York City. The burbs are everywhere else. Real estate is the ultimate game of risk and reward. It's the biggest investment most people ever make. Fortunes are made over a lifetime and lost in a day. And we're not playing with Monopoly money. How do you stay ahead? Who's buying? Who's selling? And why? What do they know? We want the truth. You need an edge. Burrows and Burbs is your secret weapon to giving you the insider knowledge and strategies you need to succeed in the high-stakes world of real estate. From Palm Beach to Palm Springs, Manhattan to Malibu, we press the experts to expose the pain, find the deals, and occasionally predict the future. That's Burrows and Burbs, 3 o'clock Eastern, noon Pacific, because everyone can make money in real estate. It is time to change the negative narrative of divorce. Families are hungry for a different option. Listen to The Good Divorce Show with Karen McNinney. You will discover how to function as one family living in two homes. There are high-functioning, stable, and happy divorce families living in your neighborhood. What's their secret sauce? What did their journey look like? Do they have regrets or recommendations? Let's find out. It's never too late to have a good divorce. The Good Divorce Show, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. All who live face a time of passing. Is death the end, or will souls enter an afterlife? Have you ever wondered about historical figures and what they would say if they were alive today? Psychics and authors Barry and Connie Strom will use their gift of spirit communication to answer questions and channel spirits concerning the hereafter. 
Tune in to Spirit Speak, exploring the afterlife with Barry and Connie Strom at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to the patricia raskin show if you wish to call into our program today please call 1-866-472-5788 that number again is 1-866-472-5788 you may also send an email to patricia at patriciaraskin.com now back to the patricia raskin show hi everyone and we are back we are talking with gail sahar who's the author of the new book Blame and Political Attitudes, The Psychology of America's Culture War. And in this book, she illustrates the polarizing influence of blame in our culture in many issues. Uh, And whether it's religious or secular or conservative or liberal, but we're looking at how people think differently and then how they attach blame to their different ways of thinking. Right. Gail Sahar is a Jane Oxford Kiter Professor of Psychology at Wheaton College in Massachusetts. And Professor Sahar has been researching the effects of causal perceptions on political attitudes for over 30 years. Welcome, Gail. Welcome back. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's talk about people from different ideologies, people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different countries where the thinking is just very different. How do we work with that in terms of blame? Um, I think one of the things we can do first off is to avoid making too many assumptions about other people. I think we do have a tendency, particularly because I think as Americans, we're relatively isolated here. We, It's not like in Europe where they're constantly interacting with people from the neighboring countries, et cetera. So we certainly have immigrant populations here, but I think you know, we don't know as many languages as many people in the world. And I think there can be a tendency to sort of stereotype the other. So people from other countries, for example. Um, and when we make those assumptions, we're kind of not allowing the person to tell us what they really think. Um, but I think it's also true even talking across ideologies. I, I think nowadays, for example, liberals and conservatives and Democrats and Republicans have very different stereotypes of each other. Right. So people make jokes about it. The latte drinking New England liberal driving a Volvo, et cetera, right, versus the, you know, the gun toting. I mean, the sort of stereotypes we have of the deep conservative versus the deep liberal. And oftentimes those things are wrong. Right. So I'd say one thing is to to kind of avoid making those kinds of assumptions about people. Um, And I think listening you know, as you probably talk about a lot in doing your conflict resolution work, really listening to what people have to say and trying to limit your interactions to questions like, why do you feel that way? What makes you so sure that that's what's going on, right? That kind of stuff, which is non-threatening, is much better than, well, I don't understand how anybody can think that way. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, that's just your religion talking or whatever it is. Um, So I think yeah. Yeah. And I think it goes often to um, visual things like dress, for example, with um, Muslim population where women will cover their heads, yes. Orthodox Jewish population where the woman will wear a wig. Right. So for the Orthodox Jews, it's very much about 
sexuality and that the hair is a sexual symbol and only to be shared with the husband. Right. I mean, that's one of that's one of the thinking about that. The right. Muslim, it could be similar. It could also be something different. Yeah. But many times we look at that as Americans and we just don't get it. Absolutely. And then you go into the situation with already predisposed. There was a really interesting study where they actually showed people pictures of women in different amounts of cover. I think they were all Muslim women, some were like with a full hijab and others, you know, the whole from a headscarf to the most extreme. Right. And what they found was the more covering, the less positive people were about the person. They were more likely to think they were religious fundamentalists. They were more likely to believe they were even abused or Mm. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting. You're absolutely right. The assumptions we automatically make. And when we do those, then it, it limits our ability to have real, genuine interactions with people. Right. And what would be the real explanation for the Muslim covering? It's Is it the same kind of thing where we are, the woman is there for the husband? I think it is the same sort. I mean, I'm not an expert on the um, religion, but my understanding is that it's something very, very similar, that this is sort of sexual and should be kept private and not in view of anybody in the general public. I don't know why some, I actually don't know the answer. I'm not, yes. could ask a professor. Yeah, I'm not sure of that answer as well. I'm curious yeah. why the why hair is so significant in, in yeah. Judaism and also in Islam. Yeah, but it seems, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was interesting because um, Christian Amanpour did a, um, it was a series, it was either a year or two or more ago, I lose track of the time with COVID of when it was, but it it really stuck with me. And she interviewed people from women from different cultures about sex and about sexuality. And one of the points she made is that when she talked to women from other countries, more for example, Arab countries, and it could have been other countries as well, they were very uncomfortable talking about it. They, you know, this was very private. It was very sacred between them and their husband. They accepted whatever it was, you know, if it, if it, whatever private moment they had. And it just, it, it almost wasn't about sex, sex. It was more about this very private personal moment where in many cases it might've been where they conceived their child. But the women were very, they just were very uncomfortable talking about it. And it was interesting to watch that. And it felt to me like it was uncomfortable because this is what they've accepted. It was very private and and sacred Mm -hmm. and not to be tampered with, if you will. In our culture, it's completely different. People talk, a lot of people talk about it all the time. That's true. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think, you know, different cultures have different feelings, even around nudity and stuff. I know that I, I was raised in the U.S., but some of my cousins who were, who were born in the Middle East would talk about moving here in their teenagers and the trauma of having to go to gym class and, and take off their clothes in front of other girls even was horrifying, yeah. was terrifying, right? So we forget sometimes that it's, we have habits too, right? And and we forget sometimes, I think, that it's when you grew up in a particular way, you, it's hard to imagine any other way of being. Isn't so there- really, I think the I think the bottom line here is for us as Americans and for all cultures to try to get beyond what we're seeing yeah. Yeah. and understand why. Yeah, that's what I tell my students. One of the things I love about my field of social psychology is that unlike clinical psych, we're really focused on general ways of people's behavior. So we're much more focused on how people are similar than how they are different. 
and my feeling is we are much more similar than we are different, even across cultures and, you know, really different cultures. I think human beings are. Right. I mean, we all have loss. We all have pain. Yeah. But we all need connection. Right. You know, isolation is not good for any of us as humans. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. We all want dignity and respect. And so all there's so many things that I think that we have in common. And if we could focus more on those things, I think it would be a real plus in these interactions. Gail, do you think it's changing at all? Do you think it's changing for the positive? Are people blaming less now as they become more aware? Or certainly in politics, it's rampant now. But what do you see for the future, just on your research? Well, I would say um, this is really mostly based on my experience with now, so many years of, I've been at Wheaton teaching, this will be my 30th year. So I've been teaching wow. a long time. And I do feel like our students are extremely tolerant now. I mean, they really are much less uh, afraid of difference, right? Of people being different. They're much more protective of each other. Than they were five years and 10 years ago. Yeah. So I'd say the one exception is, as you're pointing out, is politics. I think it's still hard for for even young students, I think, to talk across the ideological divide. But as far as race, religion, things like that, I've been amazed at how even gender issues, you know, I'm, I'm sort of amazed at how accepting our students really are of each other. And they will even defend each other. I've seen that happen in a class where a student felt like someone said something inappropriate and they will raise their hand and say, I don't think that you should have talked to the person that way, et cetera. So I do feel there's hope in the next generation mm. um, if we can get some of this other sort of polarization under control. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I do feel hopeful for the future. Oh, wonderful. All right, we're going to take another break and we're going to come back with Gail Sahar. And again, she is the author of the new book, Blame and Political Attitudes, The Psychology of America's Culture Wars. And Gail Sahar is a Jane Oxford Kiter Professor of Psychology at Wheaton College in Massachusetts, and she's been researching the effects of causal perceptions on political attitudes for over 30 years. You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on voiceamerica.com. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. As humans, we suffer when we believe we are not good enough. We are taught we must be better, look better, try harder, and achieve more. We cope with the stress and disappointment of life in ways that make us feel worse and keep us stuck in a cycle of unworthiness. We don't have to live this way. You don't have to live this way. Kirsten and her guests will share how self-acceptance and unconditional self-love can help you break this cycle and find freedom. Listen to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans, with Kirsten Johansson, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Bright Horizons College Coach, a team of former admissions and financial aid officers, the show takes a deep dive on subjects such as choosing the best essay topic, negotiating merit aid, and navigating the common app. 
Listeners will learn what really goes into college acceptance decisions from the experts who used to make them. New episodes drop Thursdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to The Patricia Raskin Show. If you wish to call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. Now, back to The Patricia Raskin Show. Hello, everyone, and we are back. You are listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on voiceamerica.com, America's Voice. We are talking about blame and the effects of blame, not just short-term, but long-term. My guest is Gail Sahar. Her new book is Blame and Political Attitudes, The Psychology of America's Culture War. And she talks about the polarizing influence of blame, not just in politics, but in culture. Gail Sahar is the Jane Oxford Kider Professor of Psychology at Wheaton College in Massachusetts and has been researching the effects of causal perceptions on political attitudes for over 30 years. Welcome back, Gail. Thank you. All right. Let's talk about something that right now in 2023 is a recent issue. And as I said, this show is evergreen. People could listen in two or three years. But I want to use this as an example of two different sides of an issue. So recently we've been talking about affirmative action in colleges. So explain what that is and the situation. And then even though you may be skewed in one area because you are a college professor and you're in that you're in that realm, talk about the two sides of the issues. Okay, so explain what what the issue is. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for saying that. You know, we all have bias and it's usually invisible to us. So yeah. I'm no exception. Um but yes, yeah, so the, the recent decision, and it may be reverberated much more for colleges than for a lot of people, though it was all over the, the headlines for a couple of weeks. Um, so the idea was that colleges used to be allowed to take into account um, variables like race. So in order to make a university or college more diverse, they could sort of pay attention and perhaps give a bump up to someone who represented a group that was underrepresented at the college, um, whatever that might be. Um, and as you may know, the, the trial um, or the case was partly brought because um, some people felt as though it was, in fact, harming them. So, for example, Asian students might feel like I'm less likely to get into college because we're overrepresented, whereas a black student was underrepresented might be more likely to get. And that was the sort of idea. Um, but, yeah, um, the issue is an interesting one, I think, because if you read the the decision um, that Judge Roberts wrote at the Supreme uh, Court, the Supreme Court justice. Yes. Um, he said that 
um, it's no longer enough to simply say, oh, this is a black student, so therefore they would get different consideration. Um, instead, they're allowed in their essays, for example, to talk about how race affected their lives, but only in terms of their sort of individual experience and how they use their strengths and fortitude to overcome obstacles, et cetera. Um, and so I found it interesting as a person who studies causality because it is, again, a very individualistic. It's saying that what matters to us is that you as an individual are what you are going to be tr contributing to the college and what obstacles you will overcome and less interested in sort of the overall group experience. So not so interested in the history of discrimination in terms of how that would affect mm -hmm. someone, et cetera. So I think everybody has strong opinions on this. And I, I certainly have known people, I've known liberals, I've known African-American liberals who were against affirmative action because they felt as though it then brought into question someone's qualifications. So you will sometimes hear a person of color say, oh, I've had people say to me, oh, I know how you got into college, right? That kind of mm -hmm. stuff. So there are all kinds of reasons for being for and against, but I think what- But, it, but why would people be for affirmative action? They would be for it because they would say that um, there just aren't enough people of color in colleges. And if we want our society to be equal, right, we have to account for the fact that the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow policies, segregation, et cetera, has had a negative impact on people's ability to mm. get college. There's a huge wage gap with white people being wealthier, et cetera. So there are all kinds of variables. And I think the people who are for it really want to even things out. People who are against it, I think, just don't like this idea. They prefer the idea that everyone should get in on their own merit. Mm -hmm. So it's it's an interesting thing because I do think it has to do with causal attributions. It has to do with what is the reason that we have fewer people of color in college? Is it because of discrimination or is it because of individual factors? Um, so I find it sort of interesting in that way. Um, to and do we really know for sure? Well, we never do. That's the thing. And some people who are against say, well, there are people of color who are wealthy, who had advantages. Should they get in? So there, there's a lot of nuance, um, I think, in the discussions. But it is one of those things that people feel very strongly about. And I do think it's important to, you can disagree, of course, and we all have an opinion about it. But I think it is important to sort of not jump to conclusions about why someone is is one way or another. And we still don't know what the total outcome is, correct? I mean, it's been decided by the Supreme Court. Yes. But we're not sure what the future will bring. No, and I mean, a lot of people are saying that colleges can probably find other ways of increasing diversity, et cetera. So people, are, I think, are working on that. But it is an interesting example of a you know two different viewpoints that seem mm -hmm. to largely be about what's causing this racial Yeah, yeah. Um, Gail, what are your closing thoughts? What would you like to leave our listeners with today? Hmm. Um, I think I would I would most like to encourage folks to think about um, the power of blame and not to resort to it too quickly. I guess that would be the message that is to give other people the benefit of the doubt. And I mean this in politics, but also just in our personal lives. Um, it's very easy to jump to conclusions and say, you did this because you're bad or you wanted to hurt me, as opposed to thinking about other circumstantial things going on uh, for that person. And I think you know, your, your wise words of advice about conflict resolution, I think, uh, resonate with that to sort of keep that in mind all the time so that people don't continue escalating. Um, and instead, we're able to sort of come together around issues, I think. Right. Would... So sharing how they feel as a recipient 
rather than you blaming you. Yeah, yeah. I think that would be a great start. And if we do it in our personal lives, I think it might follow that we do it more in other ways. These things sometimes have a kind of cumulative effect where we begin to change the way we deal, even with, right? And if you're seeing it on the college level, that you're seeing students be more open to this, then that eventually trickles down to the future of our leaders because the young people are the future of our country. And if they can do this in college and be open, and see both sides, then they can bring that into the political realm. That's my hope. <laughs> and they can raise their children to, to be similar, right? I think it's, even parenting, it's really helpful not to assume the child did something because they're bad, but there may be something else going on, right? And so right. I think, yeah, I would hope for a trickle-down effect. I'm an optimist in general, but <laughs> that would be my hope. Me too. Me too. But of course, uh, that's the work that I do. All right. Tell people how they can find your book and find you. Oh, absolutely. So um, the book is on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and a bunch of other sites. But again, the the website is just gailsahar.com. If any of you want to meet me in person, I'm going to be on Thursday at the Harvard Coop. um, And that would be July. This is 2023. That I believe that's July, July 20th. 20th. Yes, uh, okay. 6 p.m. And it, it should be really fun because I'll actually be in conversation with uh, one of the Harvard Law School professors who's going to grill me with questions about the book and have a nice discussion. So if anybody is in the Boston area or Cambridge area and want to drop by, it's free. It should be interesting um, and it should be fun. Thank you so much. It was <laughs> wonderful to have you on. Really oh, was and inspiring. Yeah, and insightful. All right, stay on the line for a minute. Okay. All right, folks, that wraps up this edition of the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show. Um, you can contact me to be on my newsletter list and see all the great guests I have on each month, Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. Also, if you're thinking of doing your own podcast because you want to get your positive message out, I've interviewed over 5,000 guest experts in my four decades of doing this work, and I would be very happy to help you put your podcast together. That's what I do. Uh, also, you can find me on Facebook, Patricia Raskin, Raskin Resources. And again, my email is Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. Remember, stay healthy, stay happy get the support you need and know you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, I'm Patricia Raskin. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of The Patricia Raskin Show. Be sure to join Patricia Raskin and another amazing guest next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have an outstanding week.